Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. Thanks again for being a part of this show. We we absolutely love getting to do what we do. And we've taken a little break over the summer. And you know what? I've missed it. I've missed it a lot. And so I'm Phil Dark. If you haven't listened to this podcast before, just because you're coming on to be able to hear from our guest, Peter Mutabazi, I totally get that. Uh, I'm Phil Dark, my co-host, Brandon Stiver. Brandon, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. I don't know what you're talking about a break, though, man. I was putting these compilations together. I was recording I commentary. You took a break. I mean, a although, break to be honest, I kind of normal programming. That's what I meant. I didn't say that. I didn't uh, say yeah. that. It's, it's also on me a little bit. I kind of furloughed you, but that's OK. No, that's I love <laughs> it. It was nice. It was nice. I took a break on my other podcast, too. And I mean, it wasn't a break. Like you said, we're still putting out episodes, but it's to, to be able to get a little break from the, the normal is always a good thing. Um, just so we could be with our family more and do all that. But, uh, but I definitely miss it. I miss, uh, talking with amazing people and being able to share that with people as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, 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 uh, had a summer kind of since our last, uh, last interview and it's been a hot one where I'm at, but it's also been a busy one, a great one. A lot of really cool stuff going on. How about you? Yeah. Summer, summer was, was good. Um, you know, just back in, Oh man, I think in quarters Q2 in April, May, we um, bought a house. So lots mm. of house projects, an yeah. endless fence project, uh, storage stuff. So we bought a fixer upper that's uh, still down if we <laughs> kind of think so. Uh, so yeah, summer was good though. Uh, can't complain, man. What, what, what have you been up to the last, you know, month or two since we last heard from you on episode oh. 200? Lots of great family stuff. Lots of great uh, things. You know, I think I can't remember if we talked about the road trip or not, but we did a great road trip. We had family camp this summer. Um, really just some good, good family time together. Uh, my, my two girls uh, started back in high school. My one's a freshman, one's a senior. So, you know, got a couple, couple girls there and my son started junior high. So just crazy there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's good. My son started at Biola as well. So lots of good beginnings um that that are that are going on here my my daughter's getting ready to go over to ywam kona and uh with some of our friends over there and so she's going to be going to dts there in a couple weeks so that's crazy raising the funds for that so it's just a, a lots of really good stuff that i'm excited i'm just excited to see my kids walking with the lord i'm excited to see my kids doing things that are meaningful in the world. And, um, hopefully we're all being salt and light, um, as a family. And, and that's, that's the, that's the hope and prayer. And it seems to be like that's happening at least to a certain extent. So that's, that's really cool. But, uh, yeah. Good so, man. I mean, right now, if you're listening to this, the day it releases, you could also be at, this would be kind of weird. You could be hearing me at two places when, or two, the same place you're listening to me, but I'd be like different places. Cause I'm now not, not in Atlanta, Georgia, but I will be in Atlanta, Georgia when this releases. And uh, KFO Summit's coming up, and we have that intensive, the, the transition to family care simulation. I'm very excited about that. I get the, the privilege of being able to facilitate that. Are you, you're going to be a part of that too, right, Brandon? Uh, or maybe not. I don't, I don't know. know. Maybe not. Oh, I don't know. Maybe now, you are. Now, maybe now you're I just not. feel left out. I'm now you might be left out. And, I, and if, <laughs> if Nicole's listening to this and, and you're not, you should be. So, um, But uh, if you are, then that's awesome. You, know, you better get that I, on your I, calendar. I got stuff going on. I, you know, I, I, I got stuff going on. I, I won't be left out in the cold at Cape I know. I'm, do, I'm I know doing a won't. workshop this week with uh, 
some of our friends, Ashley Heiligman, Brent Phillips, Marissa Stam, and Spencer yeah. Reeves. I mean, I feel just fine with that alone, much less that I get to do a workshop on collaboration this week. Yes. Your favorite word. It so, is. It uh, is. It's I'm, not I'm, my favorite I'm, thing. It's not just my favorite, favorite word. That's a, yeah. Favorite, yeah, so. that's true. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty engaged at CAFO as well. So yeah, if, in, All right, if so you guys are in today, Atlanta. Though, well, speaking of CAFO, I mean, you already mentioned his name, but we got Peter Mutabazi uh, on the show today. Uh, Peter is a foster dad. He is an adoptive dad. He has an incredible story um, that just came out with uh, his book, Now I Am Known. And he is uh, one of the main stage speakers at CAFO Summit this week. So a uh, great time to get Peter onto the show here to share a bit about his story um, and his experience also now as a parent um, and bringing in vulnerable kids. So uh, we're just couldn't be more excited to get Peter onto the show. Well, Peter Mudabazi, it is a, a pleasure to have you on the Think Orphan podcast. How are you doing today, brother? I am doing well. How about you? I'm doing just fine. So uh, we were just sharing, you know, with our audience a little bit about about who you are and about your background. And, you know, a lot of our listeners are going to be at CAFO Summit this week in Atlanta, where we're going to be excited to be hearing from you and hearing from your story. And, uh, you know, uh, I was privileged enough to read your book recently, uh, Now I Am Known, which was just a fantastic account that that we would definitely uh, encourage people to check out. But you know, as we, we have the next, you know, 30, 40 minutes here, we would love to just kind of uh, hear a little bit. So as we've been digging into your story, you know, in your book, in this interview, you know, could you just start us off with a little introduction of who you are and, and how you came to be involved in the foster care adoption and, and work with vulnerable children? Yes, absolutely. Well, my name is Peter Mutabazi, and I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've had 27 children, and I currently uh, have uh, four four children, and I've adopted one. And it's truly been a joy. You know, I think for me, I got to be introduced to foster when I met a pastor in Kenya. You know, he was so excited about his child. I was like, okay, how old is the child? He said, like, a few months. And then he showed me, you know, once he showed me the picture, I was like, wait a minute, you're white, your kid is black. How does that work? <laughs> uh, and then he explained to me what force care was or is, you know, and as he was sharing, I think it all clicked for me. Like I was one of them, you know, I was unwanted. I moved from place to place. Uh, the abuse, I know it left and right in every way, shape, form. And somehow I feel like, those are my people, you know? So that's how I really, you know, came to know about Foscare while I'm on a compassion trip in Kenya with the pastor. And when I came back, I was like, man, I want to know more about that, you know? But at the same time, I think I was struck, you know, I traveled over the world with pastors and had traveled to Kenya, China, and Uganda. And all the, all the adapting parents who were adapting in these countries were white and they were married, you know? So in some way I feel like, hmm, do I qualify to do so? So I asked someone in, in Ethiopia, I said, hey, if I want to, to adapt, what do I need to do? She said, well, you have to be an American or you have to be European. You have to be married or you have to be a single female. But for male, you cannot. So in some way, I felt like there was no hope or opportunity for me to do any of that. But somehow I wanted to be involved. So I walked in the foster care system to be a mentor because I... 
I really have a heart for teenagers. So I thought at least they will let me mentor teenagers. So that's when I walked in and I said, hey, anyone I could help? And the social worker said, hey, have you ever thought of being a foster dad? I said, well, I don't think I qualify. She's like, what do you mean? I said, I'm single. She's like, well, that's a lie. Actually, you can be a false friend. And right away I said, where do I sign up? Where do I sign up as a proof that you allow me to be a false friend? Well, this was on Monday and the class we're studying on, on, on Thursday. And I was there, right there to start my journey. Oh, I love it, man. And, you know, as a, as a dad myself, and uh, I'm, I'm, uh, we also have a multicultural family, a transracial family. Uh, my, my oldest is African. So I'm, I'm the inverse of you. I'm an American with an African child. You're an African with an American child. But, uh, but I uh, just loved, you know, learning a bit about your story. And, you know, we just kind of say, you know, as, as this guy is a friend of ours and a past person on the show, that pastor that you talked to on the bus was not just anybody, but the one and only Jason Johnson, who is a friend and a, and an awesome guy. So uh, we just love all the people that you're connected to and, and, and such an advocate. Uh, for for foster care and adoption, so we're we're just so pleased to have you on the show. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, and I was just blown away by the book and by your story, and just to to see you here in this interview and to hear you speaking, and I just I'm just so excited to be able to have this conversation because um, I love how God can work and redeem situations that. A lot of people would look at and go, nope, nothing can happen out of that. And, and, and one of the other things that I, that was really interesting to me that, um, that I read in there was in your book, you, you shared about the experience growing up in, in Uganda and the different trials that you faced and really the different types of poverty and the different situations that you lived in. And, and we, we talk about this, that not all poverty looks alike, right? And even in the same country, in the same type, you know, in the same kid, right? So you know, you live really on the, you live on the street and then you also were in rural, uh, Uganda living in with your family, uh, your, your biological family. And then you also lived in the urban slum with your aunt. And so can you just speak to the differences and how that played out in your life as a child? Well, absolutely. So I grew up in a, in a rural area in, in Uganda, you know, in Southern, you know, right at the border of Uganda and Rwanda. So yes, poverty was so difficult. It was so uh, hard in some way that, that it was different than the urban, you know. Of course, we had gardens so we could grow crops. As most farmers, we call we call ourselves subsistence farmers, that we grow what we can feed on, you know. You would go fetch water miles and miles away. And, you know, so, they, you know, everyone's poor is around you, but at least there was space, you know, there was space to walk, there was space to see, there were gardens we could grow crops. So there was a little glimpse of hope when you had time to grow what you needed, you know. But I think for me, the harder part was, Everyone around me was poor, you know, in some way that we, but we had a, a common thing that we all grew up in a farmland, we'd go farming. We didn't go to school because there was, you know, schools were far, there were no hospitals, but there was, there was space in some way that as kids we would participate in really helping our families be able to have food. In my case, you know, I think having 
poverty, but also having an abusive dad. It was just, it's like a double whammy. At home, it's it's tough. You have nowhere mm-hmm. to, 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 to be hopeful for. But even the outside, it was harder because you had to grow so quickly. You know, think about like at four, I would go help my, my mom to grow uh, the beans and potatoes. At four, I would help my siblings to make sure that they were okay. So I, at four, I was literally like a 15 year old, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of what responsibilities I had to take. But then in the slums of Kampala, you know, so think you have people from all over the place that speak different languages that have issues, alcohol, drugs, prostitution, all in one place. You know, you have the sewer, which I didn't have in my village. You have the sewer running through. You have the garbage all in the slum areas. You know, all the thieves in the city come. That's where they live. All I mean, think of all the chaos, all the bad live in the slums of Kampala. And that was my, my home as well. And then as a street kid, street kid was more of literally I lived on a uh, like in the market, you know, where people come and grow, uh, sell crops, where buses come and park. So it was safer to live in a very common or very uh, commotion going on that was easy to, to hide. So poverty and hopelessness, yes, was it, it affected me the same way, but it came from different ways uh, on how we really experienced that. You know, uh, I think village is a little bit maybe better because you can breathe. You you have you all speak the same language. Uh, but the oven was harsher because you, you come from a different world and everyone is there for one reason to survive. Uh, so that's how I really faced my childhood. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things that you mentioned in the book, too, was the and it was just a quote. And I got, I'm not going to quote it directly um, exactly the same, but it was something about the fact that um, and you, you experience a lot of different things with these different people. And I just wanted to bring this up. It's not necessarily differences in the poverty, but the difference is how you relate to different people. And you said that the abuse from your father was different from abuse from other people because he's the one who's supposed to protect you. Can you speak to that a little bit more? You know, I think as a kid, you, you grow up in a home and you think, okay, you got parents that brought you to life, but we'll protect you and we'll do the best for you to be hopeful and survive. So I think for me having the, the one, you know, and I think for me having a dad who I had every day, think as a kid, I had these three words from my dad, you will never mount to anything. You are useless. I wish you were never born so I did not have to feed you. When you hear those from your father and you see the action he does, as a kid, you know, why, why was I born? Why am I on earth? Like, why? Why should I, should I be on earth? For me, I think all I wish my life was, I wish I was dead, that I did not have to hear these words. But then as a street kid, yes, you know, I didn't hear, I, you know, yes, I had uh, bad words towards me, but there were strangers. There are people I had never known, the people I didn't know. So it was a little easier to hear it from a stranger than someone who would protect me, you know. But two, I think on the streets, I felt like they had a reason to call me that because I was hopeless. I was eating in the garbage. I was smelling. I had no hope, no aspiration in any shape, form. So everything they said really mirrored what my life was. So that's why I didn't take it serious in some ways. Like, well, if you think I'm garbage, well, I live in the garbage. If you think I'm useless, well, I'm useless. I don't belong anywhere. I have no goals in life. Yes, I believe what you say. Or sometimes they would abuse us in every shape, form you could imagine. But I almost felt like I deserved it because I was a less of a human being, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the way they called you names or the things they did to you that you you felt like um, 
maybe I deserve it because that's that's who I am. That's what I look like. Uh, and and in, in, in many ways, I accepted it just so I can survive. Uh, that was the difference from home and, and being on the streets. Yeah. Yeah. That was so poignant to me. And and folks, I, I strongly, I can't, I can't encourage you strongly enough to go out and get this book. Um, it just released recently and it is so good. There's, we're not going to be able to cover all of it, nor do we want to, because I want you to read it um, to be able to read the full story. But there, there's so much more to it. But can you just uh, let our listeners know, just we didn't mention this, but how old were you when you took a bus from your rural village all the way to Kampala, which wasn't a short bus trip? I was 10 years old, you know, yeah. just 10 years old. I, I didn't right. know where I was going. I had never been 20 miles away from my village. So for me, running away wasn't like I was looking for hope or for a better life. It was more of I would rather die, but die in the hands of someone else, but not my dad. So I was 10. Uh, that's how I made it to Kampala. Wow. Yeah, that's so amazing to me. And it, so the, another thing, I mean, just the the thing after thing that you experienced that you know, no kid should have to experience these things, but God had a plan for you, right? And so he had you experience different things. One of the other things as a young adult, uh, you, were, you were given the, you know, the, the, Rwandan, the Rwandan genocide happened, right? And just tragic, tragic, tragic beyond any human comprehension. But you were given the opportunity to respond in the aftermath of the Rwanda genocide. Can you share uh, with our audience how that impacted you? And really, especially concerning your engagement with children that were orphaned and vulnerable, as a result of the genocide. Yeah, so my dad is from Rwanda, so I speak the language. So that's why my foster parents said, hey, would you mind go rescue the children? And my job was to bring medicine, food, and make sure that they were in safe places. You know, but I was excited for my first job. Well, I got a job, but wait a minute, to where, you know? Uh, and once I go to Rwanda, I think I was a little bit shocked to see, you know, on a day to day, I saw more than a thousand dead bodies. So think about like, you mm. get to see that. How do you really think mm. you make it back? You know, and I, I wasn't a Christian in some way, you know. So for me, I had struggled uh, becoming a believer because of the anger towards my dad. I wanted to harm my dad. I wanted to go back home and break his leg and do something physical in order to forgive him. So while I'm in Rwanda, that all came down like, how can human beings take lives of other human beings? Like, what would cause someone to do so? And I think in the process of asking that and rescuing children and seeing, you know, in my in my work, the youngest was, you know, maybe six months and the oldest was 12. They could not allow, allow any older because they didn't want to trust anyone who could harm the kids. So they had to be all below 13 years old. So to watch that and say, God, how could people do this? You know, but then I looked at myself, I was like, wait a minute. I have anger towards my dad the same way. Like literally, I want to punish him and I want to go back and harm him. And I looked at my own self. I said, there's no way I can point a finger when I can harbor the same anger towards my dad. And that's what changed my life. You know, I knew I was going to die. And I told the driver, I said, hey, I think I'm going to die. But could you pray for me so I can go to heaven? And he's like, well, you go to church, you walk for compassion. You will believe I said, no, I look like one. I act like one but I don't know him as my Lord and Savior. And I really want to rescue children if he could allow me to survive. Uh, and that's really what impacted me, that in the midst of that, I saw my own self, you know? Uh, I think human speaking, we, it's easy to see when others are doing the wrong, but it's not easy to look in our own lives and say, wait a minute, 
What words do I use? What language do I use? How do I respond to others? And I think for me, it put me in a place where I had to mirror myself like, wait a minute, before I can point a finger, what about me? And that really changed my life forever. Yeah, folks, if you did not uh, hear that last part, go back and rewind it because it's so point. That's so critical to understand and, and especially in a lot of the work that we do uh, on all the things that we talk about in this is got to look in the mirror first and see what, you know, what well, before we go, how could somebody do something? Go, what, what do we have in our own heart? What do we have in our own mind? Right. I mean, that's straight out of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Before, you know, pull the log out of your own eye, but it's also a understand that, that we have depraved hearts without the, without the Lord, without the Holy Spirit cleansing us and transforming our mind. That's what we're going to think. That's what we're going to do. And, and so to, to not be so hard on everybody, but to understand that we are all broken. And that's one of the things with One Helping Hurts. I don't know. Have you read One Helping Hurts, Peter? Yeah. And, and that idea of that broken relationship, right? And so and I imagine that's a lot of, similar to what you're talking about here is to see that before I can say, oh, you guys are broken. How do you do that? To say, no, we're all broken. How can we move forward together, right? So. Um, you know, the, the other thing about your book, you, you know, you talk a lot about, uh, interactions with Westerners. I remember when you talked about seeing the white person for the first time and, and you're like, Whoa, what's that? Um, which, you know, and, and I, I've been to Uganda, I've traveled all over Uganda. And so I, I know the feeling from the other side of seeing these kids that just Mazungu, Mazungu, and just this, um, this, it's, you're a magnet. Um, and, and so, but it also, sometimes the Westerners bring, um, ideas that just are simply not true and damaging and, and things that can really hurt ministry and hurt lives. But, um, you said at one point in the book, when you come from a church culture that equates affluence with God's blessing on your life, I guess it is only natural to assume that a very poor country must be spiritually dark. Can you elaborate on that? And, and really, how did you find cross-cultural enga- engagement with Westerners um, from a Ugandan perspective? Like, what did that look like? You know, I, you know, I, th- I think, you know, I think as a Ugandan, like, I, I really love my Lord. And I understood the scripture in the best way that I was taught and learned and, and through my preachers and through my friends and, and Bible studies. And I think for me, meeting Westerners was really, was really shocking that they came like, okay, I want to teach you Jesus. But like, I already know Jesus, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but also too, sometimes how they do not understand that we, we know we love a God despite of, of lack of stuff. Like, I think they saw poverty and then they're like, well, you're poor. You must need Jesus. I'm like, no, really, I'm poor. Absolutely. I need resource. But when it comes to my Lord and Lord and Savior, I know him and I love him, you know, and my faith is not dependent on what I have or what I don't have, rather on how he loves me. Even when I have to go to bed hungry to know that he truly cares for me, you know, and I think for me, I understood Psalm 139 so well. Remember, you know, on how David really attributed his well-being about God. He's like, when I walk into hell, you are there. You know, when I stretch my legs, you know it so well. And I love in 14 when he says, for you're fearfully and wonderfully made, that I think sometimes the Western culture does, you know, like they miss that point, you know. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's really cool when you, 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 you know, you bring Americans or British people to, to Uganda. And for the first time, they're like, wait a minute. 
these people know God than I thought. They know God better than I thought, you know? And I think that really helps when we see each other as equal, like, oh, okay, you have resource they don't have. But when it comes to our Lord and our faith, we are on the same equal footing. It really helps how you get to really help us. You know, you don't come and paint our, our you know, our walls 10 times, you know, mm-hmm. but you really come and say, I want a relationship because I want to know how you love the Lord, despite on having that I want to learn to do the same with having so much, you know, yeah. I think it changes the attitude. And that's something I noticed, you know, uh, even as a foster parent, the same way attitude that I have when, when you're foster dad, that you don't come looking at the foster kids, oh, they are less of no, you know, uh, in so many ways, uh, they are better than us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I've always talked about people. And we've talked a lot about on this show too, is even the language we use, we need to be so careful about the, um, uh, you know, words have meaning, right? Words matter. And so often here in the U S people say, Oh, I'm going on a, I'm going to wherever name the country to quote, help the less fortunate. And I said, what makes them less fortunate? What are you talking about there? Cause if they know the Lord, they're just as fortunate, they're just as rich from an eternal perspective. So we got to be really careful with what we're saying and what we're using and how we're saying it. And also the, the, uh, you know, if it's just all about money, then, then we, we miss everything, I think, you know, in the, in the eternal perspective. And so that's something that we've, we've talked a lot about. And also just, you know, I often say with missions is some of the best things we can do on missions trips is allow ourselves to be served too, right? Because that shows, that gives the other people that dignity because we're created to serve. What do, what do you think about that? I mean, have, have you, do you agree with that? Would you, have you seen similar things? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think, yes, when, when we, we serve, I mean, it's, it's amazing when we meet people at where they are and we can only do that when we are serving them, you know? Yeah. When we're not overlooking, hey, these people are below me or but when we see that, hey, I want to serve these people in the best godly way that God loves them, you know, that we really see God in what he, how he loves us, uh, that we see the value of relationship, you know, uh, that matters the most. That you will get to know in my story that I got, I didn't get to know the Lord until later, but it's what he did for me that really made me like, wait a minute, I want what he has because I saw his kindness. I saw his love. I saw you know, unconditional love that he had towards me that I was like, something is weird about him, you know? Of course, yeah. that yeah. weirdness was really his faith, you know? But he didn't tell me the gospel for for almost, I don't know, a year and a half. He never shared me anything, but he lived it. He walked it. And I think as believers, when we walk that every day, when we walk the gospel, I think people see it. They're like, I want what they have. Mm-hmm. I want to learn what they have. And I think that's the key in serving others. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's so powerful, Peter. And, you know, I would just, even just in that first kind of few questions, you know, I think our listeners are getting the understanding that this isn't just a book about foster care and adoption, Mm -hmm. although it has that this isn't just about, you know, ministry in East Africa with vulnerable kids or rural poverty or, or engagement across different, you know, cultures, Western to Eastern Africa, like, this is your story and it ties in quite a few of these different elements. And, you know, what I would encourage our listeners, we need these types of stories because it puts flesh on these concepts that we talk about when it comes to orphan care. Why is it important for kids to grow up in family? What does it look like when a kid has gone through abuse? 
what does it look like when you know we have multiple you know nations, multiple cultures coming together to try to serve you know vulnerable kids? This book has a lot in there. So so this isn't just like a, a random <laughs> a random question set. Like you really have lived quite a life. And so I just again want to encourage our listeners. The book is now I am known how a street kid turned foster dad found acceptance and true worth. And you know, within all of those different kind of components, you know, the Rwandan genocide, your own background, you know, and, and abuse in your home and you know, and now, you know, as a foster dad and as an adoptive dad, you know, one common thread throughout the entire book is really how you see yourself according to what other people say. And you've already kind of alluded to this a bit, you know, the words from your from your father that were demeaning and how uh, debilitating that was. And yet, at the same time, there was also affirming words from mentors, friends, you know, you had your own uh, foster family, you know, uh, that, that you entered in Uganda, you know, a, a, a school sponsor that brought you in and, and welcomed you into his family. Um, can you just kind of speak to that? Because it really is kind of the unifying thread throughout this entire book. Can you just speak to the power of words as we minister and, and care for children? Yes, the power of words. You know, I, I might be emotional as I share about this, but I think for, for me, it was more of think about like, I had the worst words from my parents, and especially my dad, but then it was encountered by the kindest words from, from the other way. So the opposite always kind of really works, you know, unloved, we get to love, unwanted we get to want them you know and especially for our kids we always have to do what wasn't you know equally normal for them so for me all i had was you or garbage you'll never mount anything i wish i you were never born so i don't have to feed you on the streets i was garbage i was a garbage boy i was nobody i was less of a human being that's how i was treated even when it came to abusing me they abused me basis on you are nobody you're not worthy complaining or you're not worthy uh, fighting back, you know, and in most times, you know, those those words make us remember, not remember, but give up on who we are. I can re I cannot remember the beatings I got from my dad. I can remember every word he said because he's stuck on my brain that I can always remember. So for me, uh, I really did not believe in anything that I was anything worthy because of the words. So when they took me in, they use words that I never had before. So one day, uh, this is how strange it was. So one day he wanted to take me. So he asked me to sit in the car. In Africa, for those who have traveled, usually the owner drives and the wife sits in the front and the kids sit in the back and everyone else, you know, behind the truck. So he, he said, the wife wasn't in the car. He said, Peter, can you sit in front? I said, no, that's not my place to sit. And he said, Peter, no, you matter, Peter. You are special. And I think for me, Hearing those words in those moments, I can tell you, like, I can, I remember what I was wearing. I remember where I was standing. I remember what it was, everything about that moment. Because for the very first time, he used words to show me what I was worthy by giving me the seat that belonged to his wife. And I sat there and I thought, really, do you think I'm special? Really? Do you think I, I matter? But he followed by saying I sit in, in the position of his wife. And that really changed my life that I began to believe that if he believes I'm special, maybe I would work hard in, in school. If he, if he thinks I belong, maybe when I come to his home, I'll feel comfortable because I never 
feel comfortable, it's always like they're going to kick me out of the home. They're going to kick me out of the school. So the more words they use, the more it helped me to understand, hey, Peter, you're chosen. So I wasn't just a throwaway, really? You know, I, as kids, especially our foster kids, we never feel we're enough. We always feel we have to always work hard to prove to people. But he would say, you're enough, Peter. You don't have to do anything. And the more I had those words, the more really changed the way I looked at myself. You know, it wasn't the school he gave me. It wasn't the first pair of shoes at 16 he gave me. It wasn't those things that changed me. It was the words that he used that helped me excel beyond that. You know, you've been in Africa, you know the fish we eat, which is called the tilapia. It comes with scales, you know. In order to prepare it, in order to eat it, you have to remove the scales. And I think, humanly speaking, for our kids who have gone through abuse or anyone, we always have to heal those wounds first before we can take the next step. And that's what, for me, words of affirmation did for me. And they have done for my kids to know that they are special, to know that they are a gift to us, to know they belong, helps them to know, oh, now that I belong in your home, oh, now I'm going to take it and treat it special. Oh, now that I'm special to go to school, now I'm going to take school seriously. But we have to heal, and those words truly help us heal uh, and followed by the action of what we get to, to, to do. You can tell me all the day you love me, but if you never welcome me in your home or treating me right, I I will not understand what that love is. But when we say and then we act, it really helps us heal, especially for all of us who've gone through trauma. No, that's so well said. And, and you know, that, that piece for kids that are coming out of traumatic situations, it is, it is so damaging and so all-encompassing the way that those, that those hurts feel, you know, whether that's verbal assault or physical assault. Um, it, it just tears these kids down and, and it's, it's really remarkable. And, you know, a, a commendation to the God's work in your life, you know, unfortunately, a lot of kids that go through that level of abuse or are separated out on the streets, you know, you even talked about when you went back to the streets, cause you lived there for several years as a, as a, as a youth, um, you know, you would go back and sometimes your friends weren't even there anymore. And, and sadly, tragically, that is a reality, right? So the fact that, that you have persevered and come through is really a credit to, to God's work in your life and, and, and even just the resilience that you've developed over time. And, and now you're passing that on to other kids that have also gone through traumatic experiences. Can you just tell us a little bit about what you've learned through being a foster and adoptive parent, which is, which is you know, if you guys uh, don't haven't heard of Peter before, or maybe you have, uh, he has a robust social media following, so uh, which is which is fun to see. Uh, Instagram, YouTube, so you guys should definitely check out. Uh, is your is your handle Foster Dad Flipper? Is that right? Yes, Foster Dad Flipper. Yeah. Oh, now I'm known. Yeah, so so uh, definitely check him out on social, and and this is really the space that you're particularly known for. So can you just tell us a little bit about what you've learned, you know, through being a foster and adoptive parent, and then specifically what you would want people to understand about you know even the system itself here in the U.S. Yes, the foster system. You know, I, I think for me, I I was attracted by uh, 
I always wanted to be a dad, you know, but I thought I would be the wrong dad because I had the worst dad. I didn't, you know, I didn't have an example, but this man who took me in truly showed me what a father ought to be. You know, I didn't know what love, he showed me what love was. He, I didn't know what unconditional love is, he showed me. I didn't know belonging, but he showed me. And as soon as I think I, I became a believer, I wanted to use what I'd been given to help others. To whom much is given, much is required. I was like, man, of all people, I've been given so much. And I want to do something for others. So going to the false care system, it was, it was, first of all, I thought, man, you know, uh, where do I begin and where do I start? And, and as soon as I walked in, man, I, I got my first uh, placement. And from there, I really began to learn a few things. One, during my, uh, my class to be a licensed, I would see people looking at me like, what is he doing here? You know, and then I realized that there are fewer men who do what we do. I, I mean, that's why it makes me a little bit emotional to talking to you guys that he's my fellow man that are really passionate, the same thing I'm passionate about, you know, but they would look at me. I was like, yep, yeah, I'm here to be a, a, a parent you know and then the other part was once I got kids most of my kids were Caucasian kids because of places I lived you know there were hardly any black people but how I was treated most of the time sometimes in the wrong way like I, how dare you be the dad are you fit to be their dad but on the other side too the other part was that they saw two different families that didn't look alike but yet family you know that really that helped me want to change the narrative like hey uh, I want to change the narrative that it's 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 all people that we can all reach out to kids that need us the most. And as soon as I got that, I really learned to use it to truly inspire others to help every child by not where they come from or what they look like, by just the mirror that they are in the false care system. And so I learned quickly. The other part I learned quickly was that we are we we people who are understand a little bit about false care, we are quick to judge the parents or we are quick to throw a stone towards them. But I realized like, wait a minute, that was my mother. Every time I was on the streets, I would hear people say, what a mother would let their kids be on the streets. But well, my mom could not protect me. She got the same abuse I got, you know? So sometimes we are quick to judge but without really understanding where they come from, you know? You know, one time my kid was sick and I, it was three in the morning. I didn't, I didn't know who to call. I knew the social worker would not pick up. So I was like, I have one person, the mom, and I called the mom and she told me what to do. And the kid was well. The following morning, she called me. She said, Peter, thank you for letting me be a mom for two minutes. You know, by that, I knew she's my ally. She's not my enemy, but my ally as a single parent that I needed her more than anything else. That I learned that, hey, to foster is to foster the entire family. You know, I had 10 weeks to learn to be a parent. I am educated. I have every resource you could imagine. But some of our parents don't have that. But they don't have someone to call when things are going wrong. They don't have resource when they cannot transport their kids. So for me, I had to learn that I'm going to be an ally to advocate for them, to fight for them, but also to be a resource for them. And I think for me, that really helped me on how to be the best foster parents I can be. And reunification too, that it is important. The best gift to a child is when they go back home. But the bridging the gap is sometimes where we miss as foster parents. You know, yes, we love these kids. Yes, it's hard to say goodbye. But boy, when we come alongside, when we inspire the parents to do the best they can to have them back, is the greatest part. And that really helped me understand really well. The other part was, you know, behaviors is just a by the way, because I, I stole because I was hungry, you know? 
I fought every day because I was fearful that someone was going to harm me. All those were more of what was happening in my heart or what was happening in my in my brain that I had to freeze and protect myself. That as a foster parent, I had to do the same, that I have to truly remember the trauma, not read into what they say, what they do, but truly look into deep down, where is that coming from? And how can I come alongside to truly help them overcome the trauma? My job is not to take off those bags of trauma, but my job is to shepherd them to do it their own way at their own time, the best way they can. And that's really what I have learned to be the best parents I can be. That My job is to love unconditionally. And the rest, I think, will be worked out through somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I also just love that emphasis on reunification. I feel like that's something that we're coming across more. I'm reminded of our conversation earlier this year with Jamie Finn, who talked a lot about that and just the importance of that reunification piece um, and, you know, playing a role. And sometimes that's providing permanency, you know, as you've done as an adoptive dad. But more often than not, it's helping a kid who's gone through some trials and some challenges and gone through some adversity, but helping them as they get back into their family. I just love that. You know, and, and in your experience, Peter, you've actually been licensed in a couple different states. So you've gotten to work with a couple different, you know, child welfare systems as a foster dad. Can you describe that a little bit? How, how do you find that government piece? How do you find that licensing piece? What, what, what gaps, you know, have you kind of come across, you know, as, as a caregiver, you know, within these broader systems that, that, that Christians and, and, you know, all foster parents are, are trying to provide support in oh boy oh boy you know <laughs> that's a hard one you know but i think and you know we have policies and rules and government regulations those i truly understand but i think for me i've tried not to pay attention to those but rather to look at the child on the other end you know uh, some force system some you know they they have a file they have to work on that file but for me i have a human being on the other side so to make sure that i become the face of that little human being and say i know you have to fulfill your number one two three four policies but there's a little boy here a little girl here that needs that that needs us more than your uh, crazy paperwork that you're wanting to, to do for me, you know? So I think for me, I learned what the system and how broken it is, but to make sure that it did not get in my way of taking care of my babies. Uganda government is the most corrupt government you could think of, you know? Uh, I mean, you, you can name whatever, but sometimes we, we don't have to focus on what governments and policies of all kinds and forget about the human beings, you know? And I think that's for me where my focus is. My kids, are they okay? Am I advocating the best I can for them? And where the system fails me to say, okay, where can I find another way to truly be there for this little one and make sure that they have the best they can. But otherwise the system, trust me, I, I don't know, Jesus will have to come back <laughs> for yeah. them to work properly. But while I have this system, I do not want them to be a distraction. And I think for me coming from two different states, it's sometimes like, what language do we speak? Do we, do we understand each other? But two, understanding the human part of them. You know, for me, my social worker, I will never blame them for not doing the right thing. I don't know how I can. I have five. I don't know how you can take care of 25 kids, and you, you know, and you have to know about their needs in every way, shape, form. And you don't live with them. Like, I don't, I don't know. That's too much expectations on my side. 
But for me, I think to step back and say, as a dad, I want to advocate my kids where I can. I'm not going to wait for a social worker to find the school for them. I'm going to do that because I live in the neighborhood. I'm not going to wait for the social worker to find the counselor at the hospital. Well, I have hospitals within my neighborhood. I'm going to walk that journey. And then we meet in the middle. But I have to step in for that little one and be the buffer. You know, I think they also know how the systems have failed them. And I think if I can shield that from them and make sure that I take care of them while, while I'm giving the best I can, then I've in some way survived. But everywhere we go, there are systems, you know. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, our kids have to, to face the blunt of it. But I think as mm. foster parents, you know, if we can shield them and find the best we can, and also make sure that it does not become a distraction. I think that's where we fail. That's where we burn up when the system burns out and all we, they speak trees and we speak uh, giraffe language and we can't understand each other, you know, to say, okay, with that, I have a human being that I'm going to do everything I can and make sure that I'm not taking off uh, that, that journey. Yeah, no, that's, that's really well said, Peter. And, you know, we have a, we have a joint, venture program in in Uganda so I'm familiar with that system uh, to an extent as well and you know having worked in East Africa but also having worked in foster care in the US in California um, what I have found is that it's better to have too much regulation than not enough and unfortunately in a lot of those East African contexts you see kids dying of things that are totally preventable right um and, you know, sometimes the bureaucracy is maddening. Sometimes these systems that we work in, you know, around, you know, child welfare and foster care in the U.S., it can be quite maddening. But I just love your your human-centric approach, you know, that there's kids on the other end of this. And that really does need to uh, continue to be our main thing, you know, and, and, you know, just kind of building off of that, you know, foster care piece, you know, towards the end of the book, one of the things that you say is that uh, some people think it takes some sort of special call from God to become a foster parent. I disagree. All it takes is knowing there is a need and knowing that you can do something about it. Um, you know, this, this quote, this is something that, you know, I'm an adoptive dad, uh, just like you. So um, for sure, um, I have heard and felt even that same sentiment that you're describing there. You have to have a special call. And um, people will have different views on, you know, what level of calling do you have to have to engage in foster care, to engage in adoption, recognizing that there is such a tremendous need as you, as you point out, you know, can you just maybe elaborate a little bit on, on that statement? Um, you know, that all it takes is knowing there is a need and knowing that you can do something about it. Can you just elaborate on that and speak to the importance of people really just stepping up to become foster parents? Absolutely. I think for me, my motto again is Luke 12 for to whom much is given, much is required. Mm. You were born with both parents. They loved you and they gave you everything there is to be on the planet. Well, I'm just saying, how do you use that to love on those who did not have it? The other part is when I say that is we, of course, we are not all called to be parents, but we are all called to participate, you know, like we are all called to participate in some way that we can all do a little thing in order for our kids to really be in a safe and loving home. You know, as an African, I believe in it takes a village to raise a child. I'm a single dad. I can tell you the most impactful human beings in my life have been the single men group or the single group in my church 
Why? Because when I need milk, they are the ones I can call at three in the morning. I mean, you have no exes to say my wife. No, you're single. Go get me milk. You know, uh, uh, you know, my, I have teenagers, you know, they relate well with playing video games or doing things that most single people can do. And it's been amazing to see when these single men take my kids for one or two hours once a week, that they are truly the most positive impact and role models to my kids. On their birthdays, they don't invite their teenagers. They invite these grown-up men. Why? Because they impacted them in some way. So that's what I was trying to say, that truly we can all do something to raise a child. And along the way, we will be able to truly do something. You know, also, uh, again, sacrifice means painful. You know, when people tell me like, Peter, um, I don't think I would be a false friend because I'm afraid to be attached. And I'm, I usually say, well, actually, that's what we need the parents to be. You need to be attached in order to fight and advocate for kids. But also, too, it's not a really good reason to not force, you know, how many of us meet our friends and say, can you tell me how long are you going to live in town before I can be your friend? You know, yeah. we love them. And then we find out they are living a year later. I think the same with our kids that we get to love them. But the attachment is what helps us be the best parents we can be. I am not a robot. Trust me. If you're not attached, I would say do not be a parent, you know, but that attachment is what makes us human. That's what makes us love. And when they go, yes, it's painful. Yes, it's hard. But along the way to know that you were there for that child when they needed you the most. That's it. That's what foster care is to be there while the parents are trying to do the best they can to have their kids back. And the attachment is a God-given emotional part that comes with that. And, and I don't want anyone to ever give me a reason like I'm afraid to be attached. No, no, it's what we need for our kids, that attachment. Our kids suffer from most of those issues. They don't know how to attach because no one had ever loved them that way. But when we do, then we really help them with the trauma. But also it is our job, our responsibility <laughs> to be there for one another. You know, as I said, I have someone who mows my yard once a month, once a month. Is he fostering? No, but man, he can never miss because my kids look forward to meeting him and he gets to teach my kids how to use that more, you know, but he's making an impact without being a foster parent, but he's just putting what he can. And that's what I meant that we can all do one little thing along the way and we can truly help the foster parents like you. Absolutely. That's so good, Peter. Um, as usual, we could, uh, we could go on for hours and hours. The good news folks is you have Peter's book that you can, you can read and you can just have as much Peter as you want and you can read that thing over and over. And so that, that's a good thing. Um, and so, but we do need to bring this to a close right now. And, and again, I will say what you just said there is so, so good. Um, there's so much good stuff in this interview. Um, so folks, if you, if you didn't catch it all, go back, listen again. Even if you did catch it all, go back and listen again. Cause you definitely can learn a ton from it. Um, we always have, uh, two questions at the end of each episode that we ask our guests and this is no exception. So the first is, uh, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? 
Ooh, I read one book that impacted my life. The same kind of you, the rich man and the poor man from, you know, Denver. That really, to this day, really, I think I put myself in, in their shoes and how that changed his life. Uh, and the same for me. Uh, what person, of course, my, you know, my foster parents, you know, that man, that he didn't have to love me, but there were more than 2,000 kids on the streets of Kampala, but he loved that one. And that one happened to be me. So he truly changed my life. And it's my goal to change the life of others for what he did for me. Yeah. So, so that was the person that most impacted your life. Is that what you're saying there? Yes. That was yep. the most awesome. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you answered both questions in the one. So you're, you're just an overachiever, Peter. That's what we're seeing here. So that, that's a good thing. I am so excited to hear you speak at KFO and this, that again, that that's the week that we released this. When you're listening to this, it'll either have happened or it's happening right now. So very excited to get to know you better to, to hopefully we can share a meal at the KFO summit. And, uh, yeah, I just look forward to getting this out to people so they can learn from you and no doubt that book will impact many, many lives. And I'm so grateful for that. So thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Philip and Brandon for loving me and giving me the opportunity to speak on behalf of most vulnerable. Well, thanks again to Peter. Oh, man, I am so encouraged by this guy. Um, amazing man. Amazing man. God, just an incredible story. And just reading that book, man, I, I'm like, you can't tell. I'm blown away by it. And I am even more blown away by the man just hearing his, his um, not only the story, but just the articulate way of sharing all that he's learned, brought together experiences he has, how he's given back, how he is just giving what he has for the kingdom. And I am so encouraged by him. How about, how about you, man? Yeah. What, what I appreciated most about the book and just about his story is the way that it encapsulated a lot of the themes that we talk about on this mm -hmm. show. Like, like it was, it was really interesting. You don't always get the bridge between the U S foster care system and vulnerable children in the global South. Right. And with those being kind of the two big buckets that we touch on with Think Orphan, being able to actually draw some lines and see some contrast, but also some similarities, uh, it was it was good. I mean, I would just encourage our listeners, you know, as you read his book, it it really, yeah, like I said in the interview, it, it, it puts flesh on these things that we're talking about. You may not ever, you know, and heaven forbid, but most of our listeners have not lived as a street dwelling child in right. East Africa or anywhere else. Right. Yep. yep. Um, of course, domestic violence and, and child abuse, like those things do happen. And some of our listeners might have experienced that. Um, but most probably haven't. So, so being able to actually get into the mind of, of a man who walked through that as a child, um, it was great. I mean, I, what I loved having lived in East Africa, I haven't been to Uganda, but um, I assume it's, you know, not crazy dissimilar from urban life in, uh, in Tanzania. I could literally like picture the bus stop, you know, and the yep. marketplace where he lived. You know, I could actually picture what that slum looked like where he was living mm -hmm. with his relative. Like yep. I, could, I could envision all of these things, but then kind of hearing it from the perspective of the, of the child or the youth that's living there. I mean, it was, it was. It was just really, yeah, it just, again, it just kind of put flesh. It's that, it's that embodied, like it, it helps, it helps these experiences to become more embodied for people like you and me that 
didn't grow up there, but have a concern, you know, for, for children that do. Yeah. So um, for sure, yeah, just really appreciated Peter's story and, and, and all that he's doing to, you know, come even coming out of that. And on that note, like, I, I mean, that book was painted the picture so well. I mean, the, the writing in that book was phenomenal. Um, and I was like on the bus with him, you know, I, I right. could, I've been to Uganda and I mean, you probably, the buses in Tanzania are probably similar. I mean, I've seen those sticks of chicken coming up to the window. I've seen the water bottle. They have these huge, I mean, it's, it's, I, I was literally pictured. I've been to, uh, Murchison National Park and I like, I, I, I was going with them. I've been in Kampala, seen the, seen the markets. Like it, it was just to picture that the slums to be able to go and you're, you're traveling with them through this. I've been to schools, not that one, but similar schools with the grass and, you know, just meticulous, the manicured lawns and this and the other thing. So to see that and to go through that journey with him and to hear from his perspective of, you know, just all the different stops along the way. And then to see at the end of it, it'd be so easy for a kid with that background to just say, forget it all, you know, but instead God had a plan. He had his hand on his life and down to the different people that came into it. But then at the end of it to go, I'm going to give back and to see it would have been very easy for him to just stop after the first person said, Nope, you can't foster. But to go, I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep knocking on doors. I'm going to keep, and then to hear somebody say, yeah, you can not only that, but like 24 kids and like 27, 27 kids. Like that's just, I mean, amazing. Like only God can, can redeem stories like that and do so much through that life that we can say, wow. Right. I mean, it's gotta be God. And that's what it, that's what excites me to, to see that and to know that. And so I, I know you had a, you, you also had some, something to say about Rwanda and some yeah. things about that. And I know you've had so much experience over there and, and also working in so many different capacities. Um, what, what else kind of stuck out to you in that interview? Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of wrap a recommendation in with this as well, but the, um, the Rwandan genocide, when we look at conflict in the 90s, um, kind of coming out of the Cold War era, the increase of internal conflicts throughout the world. Um, Rwanda um, and what happened in 1994 with somewhere between 800,000 and, and a million people that were, that were brutally um, killed. Um, it is, uh, it's still tragic. Um, and I just kind of wanted to share, you know, he, you get this in the book, um, even more so than what he just shared in, in our interview with him, but it is, um, it is engaging in that space or coming out of the genocide is, um, hard. It is at the same time, quite advisable, especially for followers of Christ. Um, I remember when I was in Rwanda back in uh, 2018 and, um, I was there, it was a contextual residency for my grad program. And, uh, I remember my professor saying going to Rwanda is like going on a pilgrimage. And, you know, we, as, you know, low church evangelicals, we don't always think through those, you know, holy traditions, holy practices. Um, and yet that was probably the best that I could, um, see as like a holy pilgrimage was actually going to those sites 
and and to to stand in a spot where such destruction took place it's not like oh what a wonderful you know mountaintop experience kind of thing it's actually um in some ways a pilgrimage to the valley you know um and it was a uh, it it was it touched something in me that um that just being in east africa more generally was was um didn't touch you know because we had seen the childhood adversity we had worked with orphans you know uh fallout from the aids epidemic and all of that but when you see um you know that that level of conflict and hear those stories and see those you know blood stains and and all of that it 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 reaches a whole other level and i would just say um even though it's a very hard uh visit if you ever get the opportunity to go to Rwanda, um, go to Kigali, go to some of those places where those con- when that where that you know war and then genocide took place, um, it is a life changing thing. So I just I, I just kind of wanted to put that in there, just because it's not like a central piece. It's it's a couple chapters within the book, but um, it is it is it is one of those kind of holy things and um. You know, along those lines, it, it's interesting when we think about Rwanda, because in some ways, after the genocide, they kind of set themselves apart. Really, over the last um, couple decades, regarding you know economic development, regarding uh, even serving orphaned and vulnerable children, and some of the larger changes that they have um, made. Um, and I would just um, you know want to encourage people to also. Uh, check out this book uh, called Rwanda Inc. by Patricia Crisafuli and Andrea Redmond. Um, this book was um, something that I read back in grad school, and it was it was just a helpful book to kind of understand, you know, what happened with the genocide, but then also what are ways that that the country can kind of start to come back. When I was walking through Kigali, you know, I've been to big cities in Kenya and Tanzania. It was different. Like, like there are noticeable differences in Rwanda based on some of those bigger pieces, and to and to make those changes coming out of a large, um, you know, tragedy, like like just completely tragic event, um, was really encouraging in a way, you know. And and not everything's great about Rwanda. Of course, it has, um, you know, shortcomings like any other country. But I would just encourage people, you know, if you want to hear more about that specific context um you know peter touches on it in his book but but there's a lot to kind of dig in there you know when it comes to uh understanding you know what it looks like to to work within sub-saharan africa yeah and uh that i know i remember that book uh not that book but that genocide gary haugen in the book good news about injustice talked about that as well he he investigated it um, that was a big thing that got me into this work as well was was learning about that and reading about that and and the movie it's an HBO movie I believe called Sometimes in April um, I thought was a fantastic uh, picture I don't believe it's not a documentary but it was a, it was a movie that was made on it one of the things it did um, better than anything I've seen out there uh, is it juxtaposed the reaction in the United States to the tragedy and the genocide going on in a foreign land, right? So in, that, in Rwanda in that particular instance. But it was basically, things were business as usual here. People were driving around and had no idea what was even going on. 
and when they they'd cut from a a vision an image in Rwanda of of and they they'd have the numbers and it was you know 600,000 dead on this day and they'd cut back and the the headline news was Kurt Cobain died of an overdose and didn't even mention the genocide going on and then it you know talked about the the government not calling it a genocide and being very it was just it was crazy how they did so i mean it was such a good job but it just it reminds us that if it's not happening here we don't even think about it and it was something i hadn't i like i literally had not heard of it when i was that was my college years and i hadn't even heard of it we heard a lot about oj and the chase and the trial and all this other stuff but nothing not a word about this so i i just i just you know look at that and i go that's just an example but to see we need to be more uh, involved in whatever way we can be in what's going on with our global neighbors. And, and just cause it doesn't happen here, it doesn't affect, affect us here. Like even with like Ebola, no one cares about it until a guy from the U S comes back to the U S with it. Right. These, these floods, these tragedies. I just read today, uh, flooding going on in Pakistan. Um, historic flooding. And I would never have heard about it if it wasn't for social media, having a friend. Actually, that was an email. It wasn't even social media. It was an email from a friend. Um, so those are things that we need to be, be, be caring about. And so, so folks, again, we're, we're after the hour mark. We got we to wrap up. But I just want to encourage you, read the book um, by Peter. Amazing, amazing. Not just an amazing story, but just an inspiration for us all. Um, and I, I want to encourage you with that. Um, and... As always, folks, I, I just hope and pray, and Brandon does as well, that you're taking what you're learning from this. We don't just do it so we can talk and hang out with people. We do this so it can help you, can encourage you, can help you to love better, and it can help you always to use what you're learning on this show and with the different things we recommend, and you'll use it to help you love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple of weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.